morning, everybody. How you doing? How was spring break for those of you who got one? Good. Anybody go to a warm place? Beaches? Water? We don't want to talk to you. Okay, just let you know, the rest of us, we have to stay here. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let me just tell you what's happened so far this morning. The first service, my knee went out. I'm okay. Second service, the microphones went out. We seem to be okay. So if my brain doesn't go out this service, I think we're going to be good, okay? So we'll see, we'll see what this hour has for us. But uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, New Testament, 1 Peter 3. As most of you know, we're in a series called Aliens to study this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church living in the Roman Empire, explaining to them that because of their faith in Christ, their reverence for God, their desire to obey God, that they were going to be misunderstood by their culture, and they were going to be viewed at times as, as a strange and alien people. In fact, throughout chapter 2, Peter describes how, as Christians, our lives are lived differently from those around us. He says, in one way, we love each other sincerely and deeply from the heart, and we're, we're, um, we're kind, honest, humble, generous, forgiving people who have experienced the grace and mercy of God. And that spiritual reality, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. And last week we saw Peter say, you know, that one of the unique things that people see in us, one of the changes they notice is our willingness to submit, to voluntarily yield in obedience to every human authority. And he specifically talks about submission in terms of government in relation to the workplace and then he ends chapter 2 pointing to Jesus as our example of sacrifice and submission and says we should follow in his steps. Well, just so you know, as we come to the beginning of chapter 3, Peter, uh, Peter simply continues the conversation. And he's, he talks more about this issue of submission as it applies to the family, specifically uh, to, in regards to marriage. So we're going to talk about that. Before we do, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the time to be together this, this morning. And uh, I pray in the, in the few minutes that we have... Uh, ahead of us, that you would you would give us the the strength and the willingness and the desire to focus our attention on what you have to say to us, that we might know what is right and good, and and not just know and hear what you have to say, but apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, for for a while here, may we be able to put out of our minds all the things that we have going today, the responsibilities that that we have, so that we might hear from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So one of the uh, one of the keys to uh, sound biblical interpretation is uh, recognizing and understanding the historical backdrop uh, to whatever text that you happen to be studying or we happen to be studying. For example, we, we know we know that when this letter was written about 67 A.D., that Christians living in the Roman Empire were being persecuted because of their faith which is why Peter addresses the, the topic of suffering in all five chapters of the letter. And so as we prepare to uh, look at what he writes to husbands and wives in chapter 3, I, I thought it would be helpful to offer just a brief summary of how uh, first century Roman culture viewed marriage, because it's important in understanding what Peter's saying. In short, marriage was highly, um, uh, highly supported and encouraged by the Roman government, primarily as a way to promote having children, which then guaranteed the empire's future strength and succession. Uh, women uh, in the empire tended to marry early, on average around 14, sometimes a little earlier. Men married in their mid to late 20s. Uh, there was no formal uh, ceremony associated with getting married, no big uh, public declaration needed to be married. A uh, man and woman who were old enough and chose to live together with uh, marital affection, intending to have children, were considered by the authorities to be married. If they decided to separate at some point or another, the marriage just ceased to exist. 
uh, regardless of who took the initiative and why. In other words, not only was marriage a, a fact of life in, in the Roman Empire of the first century, so was divorce. Uh, in a book titled Roman Marriage, Stanford professor Dr. Susan Tregiari explains how the Romans were, they were more liberal in their divorce practices than even contemporary societies. In the early years of the empire, uh, only the husband had the right to divorce his wife, but by the first century BC, either spouse uh, could legally divorce the other, or they could uh, agree mutually to divorce. Uh, in order to do it, one or both parties simply had to consider themselves uh, no longer married. Uh, it was deemed advisable that they notify the other party, by, uh, but, it, but it was not legally required to do so. Uh, no public authority was involved in, in the process, and uh, uh, Trigari says Romans did not get a divorce, they simply divorced. Now, in the midst of those cultural practices, there was definitely a double standard uh, but with men and women in terms of behaviors and expectations. Uh, when a woman got married, she was considered uh, a married woman. The mother of her husband's children, they were considered his children. She took on his social status and any, any sexual relationship with someone other than her husband was considered adultery. It was, a, it was a crime of the state. The man, however, was not considered a married man, but a guy with a wife. His social status didn't change. He had no obligation to be monogamous. In other words, married women were expected to be modest and faithful. Men, husbands, were allowed to do pretty much whatever they wanted. Part of the reason for that was... Among, uh, among the Romans, sex was viewed as this male animal instinct that had to be sa satiated, so it was acceptable. It was even expected that men would have wives, mistresses, and, uh, and visit prostitutes. In fact, prostitution was a huge business. It was legal, and it was often linked to pagan religious rituals. Uh, in a collection of works titled Moralia or Mor Morals, uh, the well-known first century historian and philosopher Plutarch writes about life uh, in the, in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, in fact, um, this is the guy who first penned the question about the chicken uh, and the egg. Uh, in an essay in this book entitled, Whether the Chicken, uh, Whether the Chicken or the Egg Came First, he discusses that question. Uh, but he didn't just write about these kind of philosophical questions. Plutarch also wrote about, about culture of the first century. And in this book, there's an essay entitled, Advice to the Bride and Groom in which he condones husbands having dalliances with other women. But he advises them to try not to provoke or upset their wives by informing them of these relationships. And then he goes on to advise the wives to just accept their husband's extramarital affairs. So, I mean, this is, this is how Greco-Roman culture worked. This, is, this was the norm. Uh, in addition to that, it was not uncommon for a husband to be abusive at home because it didn't occur to men to treat their wives with respect, much, much, less, much less equality and sacrificial love. And so when the message and the teachings of Jesus began to infiltrate the empire and spread throughout, the culture slowly began to change. Why? Because Jesus elevated the value of women Above being just sex objects or, or, or property to be owned, he elevated them to being equals before God, to be, to be respected and to be honored. And men were suddenly called into account for their immoral behavior. There were no more double standards. Christianity redefined and promoted sex as something good and sacred to be shared between a husband and wife alone. Therefore, Christianity brought a new value to marriage. It empowered women and it strengthened families. And so it's against that cultural backdrop 
that Peter offers these next few verses. And keep in mind, he also writes as a married man. I mean, remember um, in Matthew's biography of Jesus, he, he records how Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law one day at Peter's house. She was sick. And so Peter writes as one who was close to Jesus, knew what Jesus had to say about all this, and who himself was married. So he writes from experience. And what does he do? Well, with Jesus as the example, he calls Christian men and women to mutual submission. And he begins in verse 1, and he says, wives, and why does he address women first? I don't know. Maybe he's just a real gentleman. Maybe he addresses ladies first. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, the critical thing to note here is the phrase, in the same way. Now, why is that important? It's important because Peter is linking what he's about to write with what he has just said regarding Jesus and his example of humble submission. He says to wives, in the same way as Jesus submitted, submit to your husbands, i.e. bring a Jesus-like attitude into your marriages. For what reason? He says, so that if, if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And Peter uses a play on terms here by saying any husbands who don't believe the word, meaning the word of God, the message of God, the gospel of Jesus, anyone who doesn't believe the word may be spiritually influenced without any words. How? Through the the, the Christ-like conduct of their wives. So understand, Peter here is expressing some amazing confidence in in the power of humble living, asserting that by simply being more like Jesus in our relationships, we can impact people around us, including family, including spouses. And it's pretty clear that Peter, you know, Peter doesn't go and suggest Christian wives living in the empire, they just dump their unbelieving husbands. He had too much respect for the sanctity of marriage for that. Instead, he encourages these wives to what? Use clever theological arguments and verbal presentations to talk their husbands into, into the kingdom, into being Christians? No. On the contrary, Peter says, you know, sometimes, you know, the less said, the better. Loving, humble attitudes and actions can speak louder than words. So what was a Christian wife in the context of Roman culture to do? Peter says, be a good, humble, godly companion. What's involved in that? Several things. First, he says, submission. He says, wives, submit yourselves, i.e. voluntarily yield to your husbands. Now, Peter's comment here, understand this, has absolutely nothing to do with a person's value before God. He is not suggesting that men are smarter, superior, or more important than women. He is not saying that wives are not supposed to have desires and personal opinions and goals and careers and the right to express those things and contend for those things. Peter is simply, he's continuing his assertion that in the context of everyday life and and human interaction, whether it's with government or at the workplace, home or the church, there's a need for someone to lead and somebody to follow. And so he's saying, he's saying, wives, be willing to yield in humility, not because of who your husband is or isn't, but because of who you are and who you believe in. And with Jesus as your example, realize that submission, well, submission is more about strength and faith than anything else. And it re- reflects a humble willingness to, to trust God and to put, put the other person first. Now, obviously, Peter doesn't address certain what-if scenarios here, and I don't have time to go into detail on them or into all the possibilities, but here's the thing. There are instances when, when a wife should not submit to her husband, Christian or otherwise. Uh, for example, in the case of habitual immorality, criminal activity, perversion, addiction, physical abuse, or other unhealthy destructive, ungodly conduct. Wives should not go along or yield to that kind of nonsense. 
Not that kind of behavior. But see, Peter here isn't addressing those extremes, those tragic situations. He is simply offering a general life principle that in the in everyday course of living, that Christian wives should unselfishly submit to their husbands, allowing their personal humility and Christ-likeness to spiritually impact their spouse, especially unbelieving ones. But Peter says, you know, it's not just about submission. He says, it's also about purity and reverence. He says, ladies, if your husbands aren't Christians, they will be influenced when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. In other words, when your husband knows that you are faithful to him and him only, it will make a difference. And I don't know, man, maybe this, maybe this seemed like a really unfair expectation, especially in Peter's day and in the Roman context, when so many husbands were just doing whatever they wanted to do and were so promiscuous and all this. But see, he's saying, look, a, a Christian woman, a Christian wife lives by a different standard. She remains morally pure and reveres God more than anything else, and she obeys what he says is right and true and good and healthy and best. Then he goes on, he says, wives, your spiritual influence is also about your beauty. And, you know, when we hear that, when we hear that word, immediately we, we begin to think of Glamour magazine and, you know, all the other superficial things that get attached to the term. But Peter, Peter clarifies very quickly what he means. He says, wives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, in Roman culture, fashion was a big deal. It really was. Women, it was important to women. They would have their hair ornately braided and decorated with gold and, and silver combs and jewels. And, and then they would have it kind of wrapped up in, on the top of their heads. And they, if they could afford expensive dresses, they would buy them and wear them. Well, understand, Peter didn't have a problem with all that per se. That wasn't an issue for him. His emphasis here is not on prohibition. It's on priorities. Why? Because Peter was a smart guy. He was a practical guy. He knows, he knew what all of us know. That hair thins and grays, sometimes falls out, right? Skin wrinkles, makeup wears off, clothes wear out, fashions come and go. Time and age has its way with all of us. With all of us. And so Peter is saying that, you know, a, a, that a Christian woman doesn't focus on, on uh, only on outward appearances, but also and even more so on inner beauty, because that's what ultimately matters. Um, in the Old Testament, King Solomon put it much more crassly. He said, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Translation, all the jewelry in the world doesn't make a pig less a pig, right? And in the context of 21st century American culture, one that it's obsessed with, you know, outward glamour, GQ type appearances, all of us, all of us, men and women alike, need to understand that God is more concerned with beauty that runs deep within than just what we look at like on the outside. He is concerned with who we really are, not what we look like. And Peter says, godly wives, they get that, they understand that, and they cultivate the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He says they're wise enough to, to, to choose godly women to emulate. And he, he, he references Sarah in the Old Testament. Now, Peter could have used uh, any number of other women to, as examples, Hannah, Ruth, Rachel, Rebecca, Mary, but he chooses Sarah, Abraham's wife, and he refers to her as holy. And we know the word holy simply means set apart or different, unique. Uh, and and he, he, I think that he references her because according to Genesis 12, Sarah was drop dead gorgeous. And yet in Genesis 18, she yields to her husband. She refers to him as Lord, which was simply an ancient Near Eastern title of honor and respect. So she kind of set, she set the example of, 
of respecting her husband and, and yielding to him in, 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 in humility. And so she was known as a, as, a godly, as a godly wife. And then finally, Peter says to women in the church, be fearless. Do what is right. Don't give way to fear. And when I read that, I thought, why does he even mention the possibility of fear? What is that about? And I thought it's probably because, at least one thing, it's probably because he's encouraging Christian wives to, what he's encouraging them to do was not easy. They weren't easy things, especially when it comes to submission. Because for all of us, as sinful human beings, yielding to anyone other than ourselves runs against our very nature. It's a difficult thing to do. And not only that, it's scary. It's scary to give up control. But perhaps the greatest reason wives may fear the idea of submission rests with men. Because we're, we're often to blame, I think, because we, we struggle with and sometimes fail in our God-given responsibility to be good husbands. And so that's who Peter addresses next. And what's interesting is he uses, he uses only one verse to address the men, six verses uh, for the women, six to one. Some suggest that's because women faced greater challenges in their male-dominated culture. And while that's certainly true, I don't think that's the reason. I think it's simpler than that. I just think Peter didn't want to repeat himself because he's calling Christian husbands to the same thing, same things he's calling their wives to, which is why he says in verse 7, husbands, in the same way. Well, in the same way, what? In the same way your wives follow Jesus' example and submit to you, you follow his example and you submit to them. You yield to them. You put their needs, their wants, their desires above your own. And while you're at it, live with purity and reverence as well. And don't you worry so much about your appearance on the outside. You prioritize your spiritual life and you do what is right. Don't you be afraid of going against cultural norms. He says, you be different. You be like Jesus to your wives. You see, it's sort of like, it's sort of like Peter saying, husbands, know what I just said to your wives? Ditto. Ditto for you. And actually it's ditto plus. Because he adds to it and he writes, and be considerate as you live with your wives. And we use, uh, we use this word, English word considerate to translate the Greek, but the original language, in the original language, Peter literally says, according to knowledge, live with your wives. According to knowledge. What does that mean? Well, it means that husbands are to have intimate knowledge of the needs, the emotions, the fears, the hopes, the dreams of their wives. That's what it means. You know, over the years, I've, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. And um, if I have a young couple in my office, they're preparing to get married, and I, I want to find out how much they really know about each other. And I ask them to take a pen and pencil and write down uh, the top 10 things that's most important to their fiancé. This is how it works. I give them the pen and pencil. I say, okay, go, go. Women, <laughs> done. And the list is complete. It's an alphabetical order, timelines, you know, it's all done. Everything's on there. Uh, you know, they might need another page of paper, whatever. And while that's happening, boom, it's done. The guys are like, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to find something to write. And uh, I think that's just because women are more keyed into those important things. Guys, not so much. And so Peter's saying, look, that's not good enough. He's saying, guys, that, that is not good enough for, for, for Christian husbands. You are to be experts on your wives. You are to live in knowledge of them, know them better than everybody else, to constantly be considerate of what they want, what they need, what they hope for, so that every day they know and they see how you live according to the knowledge of them and that we are willing to lovingly submit and sacrifice our own desires for their, their welfare and their benefit. I mean, this is the exact same thing the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians living in the Roman Empire. He said to them, 
He said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, oftentimes I'll hear discussion about leadership in Christian circles, leadership in the home, and etc. Let me tell you something about biblical leadership. In any context, biblical leadership in any context always demands humble submission and, and the sacrifice of one for the good of another. And leadership in the home is no different. Leadership simply means you lead the way in Christ's likeness. That's what it means. And that's, that's true in marriage. It has to be. And notice Peter, he keeps on going here and he's saying, okay, husbands, here's the next thing. Treat your wives with respect. And the word he uses for respect literally means to, to place in a position of honor. So we put it another way. Peter's saying, you need to listen to your wives. You need to understand what they're saying. You need to value their opinions. Elevate them. Grant her dignity and deference. Shut your mouth when she wants to talk. Ray K. Translation. Be sure to ask her her opinions, her feelings, get her ideas, uh, understand her preferences. Always communicate in every single way possible that she's the most important person in your life. And although she might get treated poorly by friends, co-workers, neighbors, you know, relatives, whatever, he says, you, as her husband, always treat her with honor and respect, he says, as the weaker partner. Now, contrary to how that may sound, uh, Peter doesn't mean that, that wives are spiritually, morally, or intellectually inferior to husbands. Referring to wives as weaker partners was not derogatory. It wasn't, it wasn't derogatory. It was just a soci- sociological reality. Again, when you open scripture and read a text, sometimes you can read a verse and it just makes sense just on its own merit. Other times you have to understand the culture in which that, 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 that statement is made or against what culture that statement is made. And that this is a cl- prime example of that. You cannot forget the cultural context. Women in the Roman Empire at the time of the first century were greatly disadvantaged in the society. They had less privileges. They had less rights than men. In most cases, they were also physically weaker w- than men. That's just a biological reality. So Peter simply wanted husbands to acknowledge the vulnerable situation in which their wives found themselves. Why? So that they would love and care for them and protect them, not, not exploit them or abuse them. See? Now, many times, people in positions of power and privilege are absolutely blind to the, the disadvantages of those in weaker positions. And Peter, Peter refuses to let that go unrecognized. And so instead of going with the cultural flow of abuse and exploitation, Peter says to husbands in the church, no, 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 you treat your wives with honor and with respect and you treat them as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Here's my Ray K translation of that. He says, Peter says, guys, let there be no mistake about this. The grace of God plays no favorites. Through Jesus, grace, eternal life-giving divine grace is extended to everyone and anyone. And if you embrace it by faith, if you embrace him, Jesus, by faith, then you are adopted into the family of God and you become sons and daughters. You become co-heirs of the kingdom together, equal. The Apostle Paul put it this way to the church. He said, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise. You see what he's saying? Paul says, he says, Jews can't say to Gentiles, you have to be Jewish to be a Christian, to be part of the Christian family. He can't say that because it's not about ethnicity or or culture. A slave can't say to someone who's free, hey, you have to be a slave or live in abject poverty to be a Christian. He can't say that because it's not about socioeconomics. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. 
A man can't say to a woman, hey, you have to be male to be a Christian because it has nothing to do with gender. Those kind of external things that were and today are sometimes used to delineate positions of power uh, and, and status and measure ourselves against others as a way of increasing our value before God, Jesus didn't care about and grace eliminates. Paul and Peter both when talking about men and women being co-heirs of grace, use language that unmistakably highlights the mutuality and equality of Christian men and women, husbands and wives. Peter says, guys, make sure you realize that. You treat your wives with respect as co-heirs of grace and do this, so what? So nothing can hinder your prayers. What is that supposed to mean? I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what that means. But clearly Peter indicates that that a husband's, you know, ignoring this, mistreating his wife, is going to some that is going to somehow negatively impact and affect his spiritual life and his sense of connection to God. How I can't really tell you, but really, how much more do you need to know to take this seriously? So this weekend is Final Four weekend, NCAA March, March Madness. I'm sure you know, none of you know about that, right? Uh, I've been a basketball fanatic for a long time, a coach for a number of years, and my, Margie, my wife Margie and I were coming back from uh, an event yesterday trying to get home in order to watch the games. And as we were going home, we are talking about our brackets and stuff because everybody in my family has to do a bracket. And uh, so we were talking about the brackets and how I, I was leading. And, uh, <laughs> and so she goes, do you remember when we first got married? And I knew exactly what she was going to say because when we first got married, we got married in November, and um, uh, several months afterward, we, we had a chance to go away for a, kind of our first vacation uh, down to Florida on the Gulf Coast in a condo right on the ocean uh, for several days. And we went down, but we went down in March, and it was March Madness. And we went down, and for the first couple of days, this is, this is the sad truth, I spent 17 hours straight watching basketball games. Margie wanted to go out for a walk, wanted to go to the pool, wanted to go to the beach, wanted to go. I was watching basketball, I got to watch the game. And I, you know, during commercials, I'd look down at the balcony, 11 stories down, oh yeah, there's Margie, that looks nice. I got to get back to the game. And I was so insensitive, it was so insensitive to her, and just plain stupid. Um, she reminded me of that last night, so... <laughs> I got better. I've got, I've got better. But here's my point. I'm always a bit hesitant to teach on texts like this or on issues like this because there's a risk of coming across like some kind of an expert, and I'm not. I've been married 29 years. I can honestly say, look, I'm still trying to figure it all out. And I think Margie would admit with me that when it comes to mutual submission and yielding our own wants and needs to those of the other person, we're still in process and, and learning how to do that well. But here's the deal. You know, what Peter writes here to Christians in the church goes so much further than just wives or husbands or marriages. And think about it. He's honor, respect, consideration, inner beauty, reverence, moral purity, and especially humble submission. I mean, as Christians, those things apply to all of us in all contexts, in all of our relationships, in the best and worst of of times. Now, first century Rome or 21st century America makes no difference. As followers of Jesus, we're called to live every day more and more like him, to love, submit, yield ourselves for the good of another out of reverence for him. And if and when we do that, see, in the midst of a culture that promotes the very opposite, we stand out as different, as a little strange, even alien. But in so doing, the world around us 
takes notice and sees our love and sees our humility and submission and hopefully hopefully gets a glimpse of Jesus who humbly submitted and sacrificed himself for all of us and for the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, we, um, we acknowledge that um, deep in our very humanness, we, we're, we're selfish creatures. We're uh, prideful. Uh, we are more concerned with our own needs, our own desires, our own wants, than really we are about anyone else. And yet, um, you have demonstrated to us the kind of love and humility and mercy and grace and submissiveness in Jesus that um, kind of just leaves us wanting. It leaves us recognizing who we are as sinful, broken persons. And, and yet we know that when we accept what Christ has done for us and we experience love and grace in our lives, it begins to change us from the inside out and we become less and less about ourselves and more and more about others. And as that gets lived out in our lives, and, and the way that we interact with people, both in our, in, our, in our culture and in our jobs and even in our own marriages, we stand out as different. And so I, I pray this morning as we come to the table here that um, you would give us the courage to reflect on our own, our own lives and relationships and to decide where we are on this and how, we are, how we're living, especially as husbands and wives. And are, are, we, are we following the example of Jesus who submitted and gave himself, sacrificed himself for us? May we be honest with you about that this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.